Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. Libya, since the ouster of Colonel Gaddafi in 2011, has been associated with conflict, chaos and looks like an object lesson in the failures of Western intervention. But it's also a country that outsiders don't think about very much at all. It's just one of those chaotic places we hear about on the news. So Jason Pack's book, Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder, upends that framing, placing Libya at the centre of the current global situation, the global disorder, as he describes it. And Jason is here with me in the bunker. Jason, welcome. Pleasure to be here. Jason, first off, congratulations on your book. It's a book about Libya, and I'm someone who has a particular personal interest in the Arab world, in uh, what's going on in the Middle East and North Africa. But even if you don't have that interest, your book is amusing, it's highly readable, and it's very informative. So thank you very much. What I wanted to do is to sort of help the listener get into this topic. Let's start off with some of the really big kind of definitions And I suppose the first one of all is that the idea of the enduring disorder, which is the term you use to describe what we're currently living through in the 21st century. So perhaps you could just sort of explain that briefly. Thank you. That is apropos. Libya can help us contextualize why we no longer live in the post-Cold War world. The post-Cold War world was defined by various certitudes. Among those certitudes were that the United States was a global hegemon and her NATO allies worked with her to try to order the world. Sometimes their interventions, as you put it, were flawed. But the U.S. led and allies either followed, like the British in Iraq, or sat on the sidelines, like the French or the Germans. To show you how different things have become, what you termed the Libya intervention, and I like to look at it as the NATO support mission in 2011, was not U.S.-led. And then... In the struggle for the post-Qaddafi future, we had two major NATO allies, France and Italy, on the opposite sides of the ensuing civil war. This is a constellation, Arthur, that never could have existed in the post-Cold War or Cold War periods. And it shows you how far we have come, in fact. We don't have a hegemon ordering the allies and choosing, say, wisely, as in, say, the post-World War II institutions, the Bretton Woods institutions, or poorly, as in, say, Vietnam or the Iraq War. We don't have a hegemon leading the Western allies to any policy as pertains to Libya. And that's why France and Italy are on opposite sides. But Russia or China are not presenting an alternative order. So if we put Libya at the center, we can, in fact, contextualize the role that Russia and China play in larger questions, not only geopolitical struggles like Ukraine or Syria, but even larger questions like climate change or tax havens. As the U.S. has receded from using its hegemonic position to order the world, we in fact see that China does not present any alternative order. China has no policy towards Ukraine or Libya or Venezuela or even Syria. In other words, all of the most important global hotspots. And looked at through the prism of Libya, we see that for the first time in over 200 years, as one hegemon is receding, another hegemon is not stepping into the void. It is presenting an alternative disorder rather than an alternative order. Welcome to the Global Enduring Disorder. Thank you so much. That was a really kind of clear exposition of of the situation. And then there's a couple of terms that feature in that enduring uh, global enduring disorder, which I think are also worth exposing. One is 
neo-populism and the other is neo-mercantilism. It would be, I think, helpful if you would define those terms as well, and then that would sort of frame our discussion. You know, one thing I love being on The Bunker is how you take academic ideas and make them fun and engaging for people as they're uh, on their cycle ride into work and thinking about things. But you're right. A definitional approach helps us get at these core issues. So neo-populism, your listeners will know from your podcast, Doomsday Watch, that you and I both see a new political force that unites the first and third worlds. And this is a new kind of populism whereby elites are vilified, conspiracy theories are bandied about. And rather than coordinating with one's allies and minimizing conflict with one's enemies, new political leaders from Bolsonaro to Orban to Trump wish to have suboptimal outcomes merely so that a kind of chaos is bandied about that then makes them electorally more popular with their base. This is what I term neo-populism because it does draw on some of the Mussolini and Hitlerian archetypes of the past, but it's also new, more bumbling, and the message and the medium are conflated. Radio led to the possibility of a Mussolinian or Hitlerian populism, and it is social media that allows an Trumpian as well as a Xi and Putin style neo-populism because they spread disinformation. They don't care about like, aha, we're going to have the exactly best way of promoting Russian interests in Ukraine or in Ohio. No, it's like, let's strew confusion and make sure that Democracy is undermined as an ideological principle, as you pointed out in Doomsday Watch, as you're dealing with what Putin really wants in exporting Russian neopopulist ideology. What I find fascinating and I'm trying to hit on in my book is that it is unique the extent to which these great powers, China and Russia, are not trying to order Libya. The Wagner Group and a few hundred mercenaries there are not presenting an order of Libya where the Russians win all the oil contracts and all of a sudden, you know, they get a warm water port in the Mediterranean. That is a 19th century great game kind of thing and 100% not what's going on. Now, if we turn to neo-mercantilism, this again is a throwback because until about, you know, the late 18th century, pretty much all economists of great powers thought, the way to become the dominant power is to conquer a resource-heavy region, have a lot of trade with it, and box out your opponents. This is how British Empire was until about the late 18th century. It was certainly how the French and Spanish empires were. You know, you get the gold or the sugar or the spices and you have preferential trade with them. That's mercantilism. Now, of course, British and American hegemonic order from about the late 18th century until you could say the 1990s was about promoting free trade. The Brits were top dogs. They had the best manufacturers. They led the Industrial Revolution. So, you know, bring on the free trade. And that's certainly how American empire was. We believe in capitalism and low tariffs. And, you know, we can outcompete and outmanufacture any of your wares. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. So neo-mercantilism is a situation in which even top dogs are like, wow, we're scared. We don't want to compete one for one with the Chinese. Let's have privileged deals. And, and Libya is, again, a good place to look at these privileged deals because it's the British and Americans and particularly the American miners and majors who built the Libyan oil industry. All the pipelines, all of the grids and pretty much all of the exploration was done by American companies from the 1950s to the end of the 1960s. And rather than investing more and, and saying, you know, this is some of the sweetest crude on earth and the closest to the markets and the lowest carbon crude, 
American companies sit on their heels. Um, just last week, I was in Tripoli to see the signing ceremony as Total bought Hess's shares. And this means that rather than having eight majors in Libya as the Americans did when Gaddafi was overthrown, we have now one. It's only ConocoPhillips. And this is because American companies are just not ready to compete one-to-one and to deal with the geopolitical risk of going up against ENI and Total and Wintershall and Rosneft because they're not ready to, to play ball. So the big companies have become neo-mercantilists where they have an advantage and we're top dog. Oh, let's have regulation that just keeps us in place. We don't want to have to compete. And that's, of course, how Facebook and our pharmaceutical companies and Google are, if you broke them up and they had to compete, they just couldn't hack it. So they have lobbyists and they toss those lobbyists at Washington and they say, please use American foreign policy and regulation to give us our privileged little monopolies. And therefore, anyone who tells you that the right wing in America stands for capitalism, I mean, give me a break. Let's go back to Libya. Your book explains the ways in which the disorder in Libya reflects a global disorder, but you also... And this is where the book, to me, was fascinating and unexpected. You talk about how Libya has created that, how how it has been a causative player in a process, whether we're looking at economic disorder, political disorder in America, obviously regional effects and so on. Would it be possible perhaps to expound on that theory a little? Because for a lot of people, I think they'll be thinking, well, Libya, it sounds interesting. It's a bit complicated. It, it's rather sad what's happened. But it's not important to the rest of the world or not even perhaps to the rest of Africa. Correct. I mean, my whole career has been trying to defend defensively the importance of Libya as one of the top five geostrategic conflicts globally. Um So many listeners, I think, and many policymakers share that framing, but I think it's short-sighted. Libya has within it the main features of our global enduring disorder, right? It has NATO allies on opposite sides. It has the Russians undermining order. It has the absence of the Chinese to step up to the plate, but that doesn't get at the causative aspects. So the causative aspects to me, it's shocking that I'm the only one banging on about these things. There could be no Brexit. And there would never be a Trump win in 2016 were there not the implosion of the Syrian and Libyan states. This is just manifestly obvious. It's the refugee crisis and it's the implosion in Syria and their movement through Turkey that allows the migrant issue to be weaponized and allows for the rise of the neo-populist right, like the five-star movement in Italy, but then also Farage and Brexit. It's just not possible that they would get even close to 52% if there was no migrant issue and there had been many fewer migrants, let's say, in the end of the noughties as opposed to in the 1990s. But it's it's more pronounced, uh, Libya's causative nature, even in the American case, because the murder of my friend, Ambassador Chris Stevens, in Benghazi on the night of September 11, 2012, led to the... Benghazi committee hearings and the vilification of Hillary and all the crazy lies and conspiracy theories that led to the rise of the neo-populist right in America. And this is because regular rightists like the Jeb Bush, you know, wearing tweed and son of a president, brother of a president, and Mitt Romney style guys, they couldn't weaponize the locker up and all of this other, you know, BS because they actually cared about having a consensus foreign policy and leading a strong American response abroad. Only the lowest of the low on the neo-populist right were able to stoop to the level of blaming Hillary for something which she had absolutely nothing to do with, the murder of Christopher Stevens, who of course ignored the travel advice to go to Benghazi to open the 
American corner and a hospital there, and he knew exactly what he was getting into. And, and yet the Republicans tried to say, oh, Hillary didn't give him security forces, but that wouldn't be a decision that the Secretary of State would have anything to do with. So the combination of this disordered post-Arab Spring world with the migrant pressures and the receding of uh, American engagement abroad is something that really is traceable to Libya and Syria. Is Libya on its own causative? No, of course not. Libya is emblematic of the, the causative dimensions and dynamics which emanated from Syria, Libya, and Ukraine. But to close this answer, because I, I, I see that we're bantering definitionally with each other, it is only because the Russians called the West's bluff in Libya and then Syria, Syria over the red line and Libya over their ability to actually do a reconstruction and to box out Russian mercenaries, that Putin was willing to annex Crimea in 2014. If he was afraid that we would have gone in hard, he wouldn't have tried to risk Obama uprooting him from his geostrategic position. But he saw that Obama did nothing to enforce the red line and let the Russians bandy about in Libya. So he's like, okay, I guess I'll go to the max. And the max was annexing the most geostrategically important piece of land on earth, which is Crimea and eastern Ukraine in Donetsk and Luhansk. And shockingly, he got away with it. I recall in the immediate aftermath of Gaddafi's fall, Western countries were congratulating themselves. I think, in fact, two distinguished Americans wrote a, a sort of academic scholarly article which was entitled Intervention Done Right. That was Dalder and James Stavridis, who, who yeah. you know... And, two people who know fuck all about Libya, just to be extremely, <laughs> yeah. extremely clear here. Yeah, they, they, they know about NATO. I think that's a, that's a fair point. This is not to, to throw shade on those two gentlemen who I'm sure are, are distinguished people, but at what point did it morph from a brief period of optimism to a situation where it, it, it almost ceased to be a country. You know, there were rival governments. You had something called the Libyan National Army, which wasn't national and was barely Libyan and so on. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there was this amazing moment of optimism in 2012-13. The oil came back quicker than we imagined. It was expensive. Libya was in surplus. The, the real problem was the desire to pay off the militiamen in what I term appeasement. Um, appeasement was bandied about by other famous academics like Dirk van der Waal. And he and others said, well, you know, the militias really won this war and not the men in suits. The militias have the power. Why don't the men in suits who took over the National Transitional Council, you know, pay them high-end salaries just for having, quote unquote, won the revolution? Me and other graduate students counseled very vociferously against this because we know what happens when you appease someone. Their demands increase and their leverage over you increases. But we weren't listened to. And what do you know? Billions were paid to the militias. They had more arms. And all of a sudden, you had 250,000 men under arms in 2013 when only 8,000 had fought against Gaddafi because they could collect these high-end salaries. And then they held the GNC to ransom and forced it in April, May 2013 to pass the political isolation law. And the and GNC, just to clarify, was the government sort of holding the ring in the aftermath of the, the revolution. Correct. The first elected government, the yeah. General National Council, is the name of the parliament. So we just refer to that as the GNC period. So those militiamen in April, May 2013 were able to storm the General National Congress's offices. And that was Libya's first elected government and hold it to ransom. They forced anyone with any skill set. It didn't matter if you had been working in the water ministry under Gaddafi or if you were ambassador to India 
but then a dissident and left working for Gaddafi in the 80s, they forced them out. So the president had to resign, essentially. And we sowed the seeds with appeasement for the bifurcation that you mentioned in 2014 after the House of Representative election on June 25, 2014, for that election to be seen as invalid by the losers and to create their own government, forcing the House of Representatives to flee to Tobruk. Since that decision, Libya has essentially had two or three governments. Now there is the GNU, the Government of National Unity, but it was only unified for about one to one and a half months in March, April of 2021, because its leader, Abdel Hamid Dabaiba, who is the brother-in-law and cousin of Ali Dabaiba, the famous head of the most ghastly and Orwellian of semi-sovereign institutions, the Office for the Development of Administrative Centers. And this is a multi-billion dollar bohemoth which has engaged in corruption from Scotland to Panama and is truly at the core of what is wrong with global finance. And again, listeners, you may have never heard of the Office of Development of Administrative Centers, but you will. <laughs> so all of these forces of global capitalism and oil companies wanting to see their barrels just continue and Western leaders not wanting to invest political capital when their domestic populaces are like, no, 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 we don't want to be involved in another misadventure abroad. And then the Libyans who have 95% shared interests fighting over that 5% began to strew a conflict. Everyone wants a prosperous Libya that's pumping oil. That Libya is possible and it would benefit the Qataris and Emiratis, Russians and Americans, Turks and French all the same. But, oh, what do you know? Just like over climate change where we would all benefit, but we fight over, oh, I want to do this much coal emissions and not that much this. There was a desire on behalf of the Italians to stress that they want this oil deal in the West or the French that they want to have this relationship with Haftar so that they can fight jihadism in the south and protect their interests in Algeria and in the Sahel region and just no coordination. Libya is the classic collective action failure because it's a lot easier to win in Libya than it is in climate change or Syria or Yemen. Libya in the period 2010-ish or Libya in the period 2005 to 2010, was creating 3 million non-Libyan jobs. Just reflect on that. This is a country of 6 million people creating 3 million non-Libyan jobs and emitting hundreds of billions in profits for companies into the global economy. And now where are we? Libya emits jihadis. Um, hundreds of thousands of migrants pass through it on the way to Europe each year. It is a petri dish for the mercenary groups like Wagner, but even more so, it has invented a new kind of drone warfare where Turks and Emiratis combat each other extraterritorially over Libya's skies, and the Libyans don't even fly the drones. They only get hit and blown up as kind of collateral damage for this, this regional hot war and a dystopian scenario. Um, where new forms of drone warfare and jihadism are taking place in this enduring disorder of which Libya is the epitome. Let's talk a bit about capitalism. And one of the most 
interesting chapters in your book deals with how Libya has, uh, to use your phrase, and I love it, is has hacked global capitalism. And so that takes us to the Office for the Development of Administrative Centres, the ODAC, which just so listeners understand. ODAC. ODAC. The thing about ODAC is it was a ginormous state entity that got into everything in Libya and, and as Jason has said, was involved in incredible corruption and looting of, of national wealth. But it did more than that. It was at the heart of some of the most damaging long-term um, sort of destabilizations of the very concept by which we understand capitalism should work. So perhaps you could say a little bit about that and how Libya has affected global capitalism and the problem of kleptocracy and and tax avoidance. What exactly is the Office for the the Development of Administrative Centers? And I apologize. I can never say this name without laughing. It's because it's the answer to a famous joke. How do you call the love child of Ayn Rand, Gaddafi, George Orwell, and Stalin? The Office for the Development of Administrative Centers. And listeners, you'll understand this joke more when I explain what it is. Libya has a post-status economy much more similar to Ukraine or Venezuela than to other Arab countries like Saudi or Kuwait. And and to make a brief contrast here, Saudi and Kuwait are wealthy oil countries, but the rulers of the ruling family control everything. So even if there are other institutions like a sovereign wealth fund or a national oil corporation like Aramco, they're really controlled by the ruler. If MBS wants to sack the head of Aramco, he sacks them. If he wants them to do a stock offering, they do a stock offering. If he wants the Sovereign Wealth Fund to purchase a European football club, they purchase the European football club. That is not how things work in Libya. In Libya, each institution is truly run separately and independently, and they have these feuding fiefdoms. Now, how did ODAC hack global capitalism? Libya emits something called dead paper. Dead paper are signed contractual obligations with international construction companies that are never built and never paid for. So the Libyans have hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars with pretty much every construction or oil field services company, you know, from ones like Bechtel or Halliburton all the way to, you know, project management companies like AECOM or security companies, G4S, whatever. And they just haven't paid for these things. They're on the books of global capitalism. And when the Western companies say, hey, we want our money back. We built half this building. Or, you know, you stop the contract at the blueprint phase. We only want five cents on the dollar, but we want our five cents on the dollar. The Libyans don't pay. And then it ends up going to arbitration. And in arbitration, the Libyans win. Why do they win? Because they have a genius thing, which is that they say, well, the Office of Development of Administrative Centers is not the Libyan state. Well, you and I both know it was created by Qaddafian law. It was vested in money. All of its money comes from the Libyan state. It was given to it by Libyan law. But yet it masquerades as not a part of the state. And this is exactly what the Russians and Ukrainians do because we know that Gazprom is Russia, right? Because Putin can make them do whatever he wants or he can seize their assets back at any time. Now, the Libyan state wants a situation where there are layers and layers of opacity between it and all of the foul deeds that were being done by evil Skeletor in the Qaddafi period because they don't want to have to pay all these back payments. They don't want to have to build all of these you know, concrete monstrosities in the middle of the desert. Libya has ungovernable complexity and the only way to govern it is by controlling its semi-sovereign institutions. If you can't make the national oil company work and and pay its suppliers and you can't have the central bank pay letters of credit, 
you can't build buildings in Libya and you can't accomplish anything. So Dubaiba, you know, love him or hate him, he's in power now because he understands how the semi-sovereign institutions work and he can get Egyptian contractors to make the roads be rebuilt. And and I want to say, I think Dubaiba has done some good things. I walked around Tripoli and was safe. I saw lots of traffic jams because construction is underway. People are going out in the evenings and they are, you know, going to restaurants. And if your militia who controls your neighborhood is not a Salafist militia, Women and men are eating in the same table, not even in the quote-unquote family section of the restaurant. And that's something you never would have seen in 2015, 16, 17. So there's an advantage of having a mafioso in charge because sometimes everyone owes him a favor and he can get stuff done. As you mentioned already, you were in Libya just a couple of days before we recorded this. Libya is, is gearing up for an election, which it seems that most Libyans aren't particularly focused on. So what do you foresee for Libya in the next few years, the intense phase of its civil war appears to have died down slightly. But I don't think anyone expects a, a situation of stability or normality. So, so what are your sort of predictions? And then and what do you expect the impact of that on the, on the region and, and wider world to be? I think Romaniacs are, oh God, what now listeners will find understanding the Libyan election a little too close to home. Because a lot of what happened here with how Brexit played out is that the issues were too intricate and complex for even policymakers to understand how something like the North Ireland Protocol would then have knock-on effects on other aspects of Brexit. So the message of getting Brexit done, which of course wasn't getting Brexit done, was popular with the electorate. And this is what it is in Libya. The interlaced and interwebbed aspects of how the UN sets the parameters of a Libyan election and the role of the Libyan political dialogue forum and how various candidates can run. And then if they get these signatures and meet these things and who disqualifies them is so complex that when the UN put forth how these elections should be run and on what timetable, they didn't understand that the House of Representatives could block in this way and then could usurp the ability to make the electoral law from the Libyan political dialogue forum. And it's all so complicated that when you talk to Libyans, as I did last week, they don't know what they're voting for. Uh, And this is very, very sad. I met with a Libyan who had been educated in Ivy League American school and was working in a job where he managed tens of billions of dollars. And when we talked about the election, he's like, well, the great thing about the election is no matter how it goes, we'll be getting Aguila Saleh, the head of the House of Representatives, out. And I was like, I'm sorry, but that's not what will happen because they're only doing presidential elections now. But more normal interactions is I met a very fascinating and globalized young Libyan woman who said, I'm not going to be voting. And I said, well, why are you not going to be voting? Well, Saif al-Islam is running. And I said, well, Trump was running and I didn't respond by not voting it. Maybe want to vote more. And she's like, no, if they allow Saif al-Islam Qaddafi to run, and even if he's blocked from running, but he you know, was allowed to register, I'm not voting. I'm boycotting. The fact is Libyans have no tradition of democracy. No one knows if the election is going to happen on, on December 24th or if various bodies can you know, push the election forward. And you see something that we now have in our democracies, which is that we have a struggle not over the ideas or the candidates, but a struggle over the mechanisms of voting. And that is like, you know, in the U.S. state of Georgia, where can we have mail-in ballots? How do we, you know, pretend that the election is rigged so we can have more January 6th style insurrections? That is the decadence of democracy. When 
you don't even agree on the rules of the game. And you're so busy fighting over the rules of the game that you can't fight under the ideas like should Libya be a conservative Islamic country or should it you know, try to more open up to Western forms of sociality? Should it have Islamic banking or should there be credit injected into this, to the system? Should they do deficit spending and try to have big reconstruction works or should they try to conserve the reserves? Those are the real questions for Libyans. And then how are they going to get money into the hands of everyday Libyans and keep the oil and the electricity on? That's not what's being debated. It's all personality politics and, and, and who can vote and how they can vote. And, and therefore, Libya is just such a mirror of the enduring disorder we have globally. And I would say that because Britain and America are not you know, post-apocalyptic situations, we don't see all the features of this enduring disorder here. Hungary, Ukraine, Libya, this is where the enduring disorder is, shall we say, most evolved. It, it's, at, it's at its archetypical form. And sadly, as someone who has spent time in a lot of these hotspots, that's where I see the world going because fundamentally it's whoever can shout loudest and can play the dirtiest gets on top. We haven't exactly uh, solved the problems, but I think what this conversation I hope has done has shown that Jason's book, Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder, is about a lot more than just Libya in the last 10 years. Uh, It's a fascinating book. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for joining me in the bunker. Well, it's been a dream come true. And um, sadly, I wish we could have a follow-up called Welcome to the Global Order, but we might have to be waiting for our kids' generation. So to contrast a little bit with Doomsday Watch where you only present kind of horror scenarios, I do see a rebalancing that's possible, but we'll have a new form of global hegemon. In the past, there was always a leading empire or nation state and it ordered the globe and it you know policed the lanes of free trade and kept the Straits of Malacca open. But now what might be happening – and we see this with things like Extinction Rebellion or the George Floyd protests – is the youth are coming to realize that their little divisions don't matter and that we are a global demos. And as a global demos, we need to make compromises. And those compromises are to create a global rules-based order. I don't see this happening politically too soon, but maybe give it a generation and kids are going to be hearkening back to the time of their grandparents and like, wow, it was really great when we had a traditional form of world order whereby it's policed and kept in check by international institutions which mediate a consensus and tell the individual, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't pollute in this way and you have to register the this thing and you know we have a global pot of money and we pool it out for projects that are going to you know make an impact in people's lives. Listeners, thanks for joining us. Remember, there's a new bunker every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Friday, plus special weekend editions. And you can support us by backing us on Patreon, the crowdfunding network. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. And as you've heard, my new podcast, Doomsday Watch, is also available to stream. I've been Arthur Snell. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>